everyone. Before we get into today's episode, we are thrilled to have Ambas as our sponsor for the episode. Hi guys, my name is Virginia Velez Quinones. I am a University of Miami JFK um, internal medicine resident. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why I like Ambas because literally since the beginning of residency, I use it all the time. Even with like stroke CBA, it tells you like allow permissive hypertension for the first 24 hours if it's ischemic, you know, CT brain to make sure it's not hemorrhagic before you do anything, giving anticoagulation, things like that. Yeah. Do you find that like you still go on up to date to like double check or like you don't use up at all? I use it, but when, when I want the, like the latest, latest research, I'll go to up to date and like confirm it. But to be honest, 90%, 99% of the time, Amboss has the latest information and it's quick. And I have so many patients coming in all the time and I sometimes don't have time to sit down during work hours and like read the whole thing. And Coriam listeners can get a one month free trial using the code Coriam-Amboss. We'll link all that in the show notes for you. And with that, cue the intro. I had a patient come to see me recently for a second opinion because he'd had at least three acute coronary syndromes and had progressive cardiovascular disease. I think he had about 15 stents. And he brought this stack of blood work with him from the last decade of his life. And his LDL cholesterol on a high potency statin ranged from 42 to 49 milligrams per deciliter over all of that time. He didn't have diabetes. He didn't smoke. Yet he had progressive cardiovascular disease. That kind of disturbs me, Greg. That really doesn't make any sense to me because this patient like seems to be doing really well. I can't even think about another way to modify this guy's risk to help reduce his chance of having another event. That speaks to one of the weaknesses in using only LDL cholesterol as the metric we're doing to evaluate cardiovascular risk. And so I think that there's a lot of other information that we can get when we look at the rest of the lipid panel. And there's also a lot of information we can get if we're willing to do a little bit more lab work in order to figure out how somebody's doing from a cardiovascular risk perspective. So clearly I have a little bit of room to learn about how to interpret a lipid panel. Welcome to Mind the Gap. I'm Dr. Carrie Blum. And I'm Dr. Greg Katz. And today we're going to be talking about reimagining a lipid panel to better evaluate cardiovascular disease risk. Now that I have you as a captive audience, Greg, I would like to talk about some things today. So first, let's cover fasting versus non-fasting lipid panel. Do you really need to send your patient back if they haven't fasted? Second, I would briefly like to talk about what our current guidelines say regarding treating lipids. And then third, I'm going to make you talk a little bit about the pathophysiology, which will set us up really well for our fourth topic, which are the two lab tests that I look at most to think about cardiovascular risk. The first is apolipoprotein B, and the second is the triglyceride to HDL cholesterol ratio. And then at the end, we're going to think a little bit about what our ideal lipid panel would actually look like. Maybe we can design one that would actually catch that patient and identify him as somebody at as higher risk. So first of all, question that comes up all the time, both my colleagues, my residents and my patients is regarding fasting and the need to fast before a lipid sample. Yeah. So 
the way I think about this is that the impact of eating versus not eating is pretty minimal. It doesn't really affect that. HDL, the LDL is going to be a really slight change. The triglycerides are going to be where you see the biggest impact on fasting versus not fasting. But, you know, overall, I think that it's much more important to get this test done on a patient than it is to make sure that they come back when they haven't eaten for eight hours and you can have a little bit more of a clean sample. And so I just want to know, have they eaten or have they not eaten when I'm interpreting the test, but I don't force them to come back if it's more convenient for them to just get the test on the way out of their visit. Makes sense. And, you know, luckily I actually have some data there, Greg, the numbers when you fast prior to a lipid panel barely change for HDL. If you're eating, they'll go up a little bit for LDL cholesterol and non-HDL cholesterol, but the mean is only around eight milligrams per deciliter. So if a patient's not fasting and you want to do an adjustment, I'd say subtract around 10 or so from the LDL. The triglycerides are the one, like you mentioned, that go up the most after eating. The average is about 25 milligrams per deciliter. So if you know your patient is not fasting, subtract around 25 or so from the result. And that should get you close to where you need to be. Okay, that's an easy adjustment to make. So let's look at what our current guidelines say. There's really two sets of guidelines. There's the ACC AHA and the USPSTF. Um, they share a lot of similarities. Both of them recommend calculating a 10-year risk of ASCVD and then making a prescription for a stat, depending on what the numbers come out to be. A good cutoff to remember is 7.5%. So all of these risk calculators, for the most part, are risk across 10 years. But for a 40-year-old patient who has risk, do I just care about the next 10 years? I would say no. I think I care about a much longer time horizon. And so the idea of doing just a very short course of, of evaluating risk with these 10-year calculators is probably not good enough for most of our patients. That's a great point, Greg. I think the guidelines just don't incorporate that recommendation because it would take an enormously long randomized controlled trial to prove a benefit for statins in patients who are young and relatively low risk for 10-year ASCV. This kind of gets to the idea of how much is it acceptable to extrapolate based on the data that we have, and how much do you need a randomized control trial to really guide your clinical decision-making? And so if you're waiting on the idea of 30-year clinical trial to figure out about treating people who are in their 40s and who are vulnerable, you're never going to get that. But I think if you take the sum total of that literature, it really suggests that this is about area under the curve. This is about exposure over time. And the longer somebody is exposed to high levels of atherogenic lipoproteins, the higher their risk is. And so I look at the sum total of all of that data. I look at all of those Kaplan-Meier curves. And it really says to me that lower is better and lower across a, a long time horizon is definitely better as well. We know from autopsy evidence of young people who died at war, that fatty streaks are present in the aorta in 20s and 30s, and maybe even younger. And so the idea that you want to wait until coronary artery disease or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease becomes severe late in life before you take it seriously, to me, just doesn't compute and doesn't really make sense. Well, as a 34-year-old without the healthiest lipid panel, hearing that from my trusted friend and a cardiologist definitely makes me feel better about the fact that I just started statins. I think a lot of people take that decision initially about 
prescribe or not prescribe. And then they move from a risk assessment to an LDL-centric mindset, where they're just focused on the LDL cholesterol as the only metric to decide whether or not their treatment is successful or needs to be increased or decreased or whatever. And clearly, you know, I think as we'll probably get into a little bit more as we go forward, that's probably inadequate. Like, for example, the patient that you had who had an LDL in the 40s would have been missed with that approach. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's part of why I sent him for a bunch of other lab testing and why I examined the rest of his lipid panel in addition to just his LDL cholesterol. On a lipid panel, you get information about two separate pathophysiologic processes that are really, really important here. Number one is you get insight into the number of particles that are traveling around and can get into the wall of the blood vessel causing atherosclerosis. And number two, you get information about somebody's metabolic health or their level of insulin resistance. And those two things, the atherogenic particle burden and the degree of metabolic syndrome are really, really informative. And they're two different pathophysiologic processes that are going to influence the development of cardiovascular disease. So Greg, you know, earlier in the episode, you mentioned that you really like to check the ApoB level and calculate a triglyceride to HDL level. I really want to get back into that because I got to admit, those aren't really metrics that I've thought about much in the past. Can you help explain to me how each of those tests, the ApoB level and then the triglyceride to HDL ratio, helps us understand about the ways that our patient's biology is contributing to their risk for atherosclerosis? So it, it all comes back to how does heart disease happen? And it starts out with cholesterol getting into the walls of blood vessels, causing inflammation and leading to plaque development. But cholesterol can't travel through the bloodstream by itself. It needs to be carried by proteins because cholesterol is fat soluble and blood is water. And so the major protein that anchors every single type of cholesterol carrying particle is apolipoprotein B. And so every single thing from that alphabet soup of LDL, VLDL, IDL, LP little a that you've heard that can cause atherosclerosis has one apolipoprotein B molecule attached to it. And by understanding ApoB, you get a ton of information about somebody's atherogenic risk. I think of this a lot like traffic. If I tell you that there are a thousand people traveling up First Avenue, that doesn't tell you as much information about what the traffic is like as if I tell you there's 10 buses going up First Avenue or a thousand cars. And so LDL cholesterol, which is that metric on a lipid panel that we all look at, tells you about the number of people traveling up the street, but ApoB tells you about the number of cars on the road. And if at the end of the day, traffic is what drives risk, knowing the number of cars on the road is going to be much more informative than number of people traveling up the street. Okay, cool. The traffic analogy, I have to say, is what got me there. So thanks, Greg. Everybody hates traffic, just like everybody should hate a high amount of ApoB. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about like the suburbs, say on a day when nobody's carpooling, you have one person per car. You may have a relatively low LDL in that situation, but you're going to have a horrible traffic jam. So anyway, take public transportation. <laughs> so Greg, if ApoB is really that much better than LDLC, non-HDLC, why didn't we start with that from the beginning? Like, why is that not something that we've been measuring from day one? Like the same reason we do almost everything in medicine because of historical accidents and the order that things were discovered in. And so 
We knew cholesterol was associated with cardiovascular disease based on autopsy studies. And then we subfractionated cholesterol into different densities. And that it took a long time to recognize that it was actually the particles floating through circulation that mediated risk more than just the amount of cholesterol that they were carrying. And so just like everything else, it's the order that things were discovered. So I think that you've convinced me that I need to at least keep more of an open mind to ApoB. Maybe I should be ordering it more. But if LDL does a pretty good job on a population level, then can't we just check that? Do we really need to order yet another lab test? If you talk to some of the people who think ApoB is a waste of money, and it's not honestly that much money, it's like 4 to $14 to actually get that assay done. But if you talk to the people who think that ApoB is a waste of money, what they'll tell you is that across a population, LDL cholesterol is fine because it tracks with ApoB. But we don't treat populations, we treat patients. And the individual patient in front of you may have a high ApoB, but a low LDL cholesterol or a normal LDL cholesterol. And so I think if you want to take care of the person who's sitting across the room from you and you don't know what their ApoB is, I don't think that you actually have a sense of what their atherogenic lipoprotein risk is going to be for cardiovascular disease. So, you know, my bias is that if we're going to use a biomarker, we should use the right biomarker instead of the wrong one. And ApoB is the right one and LDL isn't. Got it. Let me go to another value that is often calculated for me on the lipid panel, the non-HDL cholesterol. I know that that also correlates a little bit better with atherogenesis than LDLC. Is that something that is a value? Is that something you use in your practice? So non-HDL is certainly better than LDL, but it's also not as good as ApoB. There are what we call discordance analyses, which are studies that look at patients who have a high percentile of ApoB and a low percentile of non-HDL cholesterol and vice versa. And what you see is that if there is any discrepancy in what the ApoB is versus what the non-HDL is, ApoB always wins, just like it always wins against LDL. And so I'm not saying that non-HDL isn't better than LDL because it absolutely is, but it's not the best. And when somebody's managing my lipid panel, I want them to be looking at the best marker rather than just a pretty good surrogate marker. So I needed some numbers. I think of like the median LDL in the population somewhere around maybe 120, 130. Yes. What what about ApoB? I have this chart, which we'll link to in the show notes. I, I basically look at the percentile across a healthy population of ApoB, and then I relate it to an LDL cholesterol percentile number. And so the kind of reference ranges that I'll use is an LDL cholesterol of 130 is equivalent to an ApoB of about 95. An LDL cholesterol of 100 is equal to an ApoB of about 80. An LDL cholesterol of 70 is equal to an ApoB of about 55. And you know the threshold for which you start therapy is going to be dependent on who the patient is and what their risk tolerance is. But if you're talking about the patient who has established cardiovascular disease, anything other than an ApoB under 40 probably leaves them with residual cardiovascular risk. And so that's kind of how I guide therapy is I aim to get it around 40, but there's never been a study that's shown that there's such thing as too low. I'm sure that there is because everything in biology is a U-shaped curve, but so far, lower seems to be better almost without exception. You 
know, there's that one other thing on the lipid panel, the triglycerides, which up until fairly recently, I basically ignored, but I have a feeling I'm doing that wrong. Greg, please let me know how I should be doing this. So I think most people use the HDL on a lipid panel as a way of figuring out the non-HDL cholesterol, and then they just discard and move on. And I've had a lot of really smart physicians tell me that they just ignore the triglycerides because they don't really know what to do with it. I use triglycerides and HDL together to help me figure out metabolic health and insulin sensitivity. And so what I mean by that is if you look at somebody's triglyceride to HDL ratio, it tells you a ton about how healthy they are. What ideal triglyceride to HDL ratio is one to one. How many times have you seen the patient who has diabetes or prediabetes and abdominal fat and high blood pressure and all of the classic signs of metabolic syndrome and their triglycerides are 215 and their HDL cholesterol is 29 milligrams per deciliter. And I, I think I've had like five of those patients this morning, actually. Yeah. It's a, over and over and over again. And that's probably the most common lipid abnormality that I see. And when I see a triglyceride to HDL ratio that looks like that, that tells me somebody's not very metabolically healthy and that they have poor insulin sensitivity. All right, Greg. So here we are. First of all, thank you. I've learned a lot. Let me ask you this question. If you had to redesign the lipid panel, if you were to add something to it, maybe even get rid of something, what would you do? You know, I think it's pretty close to what we have now. I would get a total cholesterol, an HDL cholesterol, a triglyceride level, an apolipoprotein B, and maybe I'm throwing out the LDL cholesterol from the lipid panel, which may be provocative, but again, like ApoB is a better metric. No, you didn't, Greg. You just threw out the LDLC. Well, we're going to have to figure out how to teach how to teach everybody how to interpret them now. But that's a good goal, I think, because it will help us take care of our patients a little bit better. So at the end of the day, I think I'm going to be ordering a little bit more apolipoprotein B. And, and it's not like ApoB is even all that much more expensive. You mentioned it's a cheap test. I'm I mean, the, see- the Europeans and the Canadians are already doing it. And so it's just a matter of time before we Americans catch up. So what I'm taking away today is, first of all, I'm not going to make my patients fast for a lipid panel. If I knew that they were eating, I would probably subtract about 25 from the triglycerides and about 10 from the LDL. Second, I think LDL, like you said, while it works pretty well for populations, is just not as good of a biomarker as we have available in apolipoprotein B. So I'll be ordering that more. And last but not least, I don't think I will be skipping the triglycerides and HDL anymore. I'll take a look at those and probably calculate the triglyceride to HDL ratio in order to determine my patient's risk for insulin resistance and diabetes. There's probably a whole other episode worth of talking about how do we treat patients with dyslipidemia, i.e. statins and other therapies. What do you think, Greg? Should we meet up again and talk about how to get cars off the road? I can't wait to have a conversation about why that statin makes my muscles ache. I'm going to be driving in the HOV lane for that conversation. All right. And that's it for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. Tweet us, leave us a comment on our website, Instagram, or Facebook page. Thank you to Yi Chi Zhang for the audio editing and Lizzie Holland for the accompanying graphic. As always, we love hearing feedback. So email us at hello at coreampodcast.com. 
Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Listening to this podcast does not constitute the formation of a doctor-patient relationship, and nothing that you heard should be construed as personalized medical advice. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 